The podcast you are about to hear tells the story of a Katsi man named Slumuk. Members of the Katsi First Nation have been instrumental in us telling the story properly. We acknowledge that the story of Slumuk originates from the ancestral lands of the Katsi people. What you're about to hear, you may find graphic and violent in nature. Listener discretion is advised. The night of January 15th, 1891, felt particularly cold in a jail cell in New Westminster, BC, as Peter Pierre, the Roman Catholic catechist and member of the Catesy First Nation, spoke in hushed tones with a prisoner. Sulmach was scheduled to be hanged the next morning, and Father Morgan had baptized him earlier that day. Peter Pierre had been teaching Slumak the rites and tenets of the Catholic Church in order to prepare Slumak's soul for the hereafter. In the Hunkaminam language, Pierre told Slumak, you're ready for the next world. Slumak then pulled a wooden bench closer to Pierre and asked for a pen. Once he got it, Slumak drew a map. The gold is here. Slumak said, pointing to what he had just drawn, and handed the pen back to Pierre. Whenever you need money, just go up there and get it. It's just as plain as daylight. The drawing showed the crescent-shaped pit lake and the rugged mountain surrounding it. Pierre remembered the mountainsides and summits from his childhood days, when he used to roam around the area. He committed the map to memory, every line, every curve, every symbol. Then, Slumak and Peter Pierre destroyed it. The next morning, Slumak died on the gallows. Years later, the rumor spread that his final words were, Nika Memlus Mine Memlus. When I die, the mine dies. I'm Crew Williams, and this is Dead Man's Curse, Slumuk's Gold, Episode 6, True Believer. I'm your guide, along with a mountaineer, a truth seeker, and a way shower that make up the rest of the team from the adventure TV docuseries, Dead Man's Curse. In our travels, we'll also be joined by a host of experts and members of the Katsi and Stolo First Nations to sort fact from fiction and give Slumak a voice from beyond the veil. If this is your first time joining me on this journey, I recommend you go back to the beginning as we investigate Slumak's life, the curse, walk in his footsteps, and if we're lucky, find a little of that infamous gold. We left off last time as I introduced you to Ms. Amanda Charnley, a Kate C. woman and Peter Pierre's daughter. My father witnessed someone execution. My father, Peter Pierre, spent a week with someone before he was to be executed. Pierre was a catechist for the Roman Catholic Order of Mary Immaculate. He was also a healer and a leader within the Katsi First Nation and Slumak's nephew by marriage to a distant aunt. I think it's important to note that none of the newspapers during the entire series of events from Louis B's killing to Slumak's execution have ever linked the nephew sent to encourage Slumak's surrender and the catechist from his final week in jail. An interesting oversight in such a relatively small community. 
1972, Ms. Charnley, then 70 years old, gave a series of interviews to writer and historian Donald Waite, detailing the things Slumuk and Peter Peer discussed during their time together. Waite quotes Charnley extensively in his first book, Quanson, The Golden Years, published in 1972. He then did a series of video interviews in 1978 at his house, and by then, Charnley was 76. She said her father described Slumuk at the time of the shooting as being, quote, closer to 80 than to 60, and that he was crippled from an old hip injury and walked with a cane, end quote. She went on to say that, quote, he was a harmless old widower who lived at the bottom end of Pitt Lake in a shack which was on the abandoned Silver Creek Indian Reserve, end quote. In these interviews, Charlie relayed the story told by her father of the events of September 8, 1890, from Slumok's perspective. He had been heading home when he spotted a deer, shot it from his canoe, and went looking for it. That's when Louis B. showed up, drunk and wielding an axe, threatening him. Scared for his safety, Slumok shot and killed Louis B. Seymour, the only eyewitness, ran off into the bushes. Afraid of having to deal with B's fishing party, who probably would have killed him, Slumuk sent B's body down the river in B's canoe, then paddled home to his cabin. The next day, when the authorities got to Slumuk's cabin by boat, they fired shots into the house, forcing Slumuk into the woods and into hiding for the next six weeks. Amanda said that Peter Pierre was disgusted by the, quote, irresponsible manner in which the authorities carried out their duties, end quote especially when they burned Slumok's cabin to the ground so he wouldn't be able to return. Quote, It was to Peter Pierre that Slumok eventually surrendered. Pierre persuaded his uncle to give himself up to the Indian agent. Pierre went into the bush after his uncle, without a gun, despite the warnings from the posse. Pierre told them that he was going to see his uncle and not some wild animal. He found Slumok half-starved, hidden under a fallen tree, end quote. According to Amanda Charnley, as early as the day after the shooting, Peter Pierre behaved with compassion towards Slumak and treated him, not only as part of the community, but as part of his family. We already told you the official story and the legend can't be trusted. The legend and newspapers painted Slumak out to be some demon, evil incarnate. But, could it have been just the opposite? Maybe he was just a man, and forces beyond his control doomed his fate. So if the papers at the time said he was, quote, starved out because his community refused to help, why would Peter Pierre take care of him so closely while he was in prison? Slumak knew the region well, so why would he appear so weather-worn and emaciated when he surrendered? Ms. Gail Starr, our indigenous cultural expert, member of Seabird Island Band, with close relatives in Katsy First Nation and Taylor's mom, has some insight on what Slumok's motivations for surrender might have been. People came and told him that he's a wanted guy. And I'm thinking back, what would we do if we had something that may happen to us that's life-changing, life-altering, that we may not know what our life is going to be like from this time on? And traditional people will prepare themselves for that change. And we're all traditional people. You know, we know, or my family knows that something is um, changing 
in our lives, we'll prepare for that. So in Slumac's case, because he knew he was wanted and he knew that his community was being harassed because of that, they actually moved the community out of the way so that the government and the officials could come in and find Slumac without the government or without the community interference. He may have done things like, okay, before I go, he probably knew he would eventually have to turn himself in, but before he goes, he has to be ready. So he needs to be ready emotionally, physically, and spiritually for the next part of his life. That meant that he can't be back up in the mountains where he liked to be. His feet won't be touching the grounds that he walked on his whole life. He won't see his people. So um, how you prepare for that is when we do traditional things like fasting. Fasting is preparing our bodies for our next life. And he may have had to do that in order to prepare himself so that he would be strong, so that he could do the things that he had to do next in his life. So um, you go up to the mountains and you go fasting. And with fasting, you know, you do other traditional things to prepare yourself, like saying prayers in your own way. Bathing in the mountains is, is big, being, being in the water. So when he appeared, after all this time, he probably did look weathered, haggard. He probably looked very emaciated. And um, people today, when they go fasting, when they, when they come back from their journeys, it's almost like a quest. Our resident wayshore, Don Froze, says Slumak was preparing for whatever came next. Well, he would have been um, the end result in that kind of ceremony would be to have a vision. Yeah. Have a vision of what may be happening, what the, what the future might be. To clear his mind, he probably had to deal with his heart as well, like the choices he had made, why he pulled the trigger. Because he had to forgive himself. Yeah before he could yeah. come back and, and face everybody. So our teachings are that through the, uh, let's call it a ceremony of fasting. Yeah, yeah, I guess ceremony of fasting. It was all about preparation. With his community threatened by colonial authorities and relocated miles away from their home to reserves, it makes sense that Slumak surrendered himself to someone he trusted his nephew, Peter Pierre. This flips the script on the whole brash young Indian thing. Before we started on this journey, I had never heard the word catechist before in my life. And now one is the central character in the story. If you're like me and wonder how Peter Pierre cared for Slumok and what he did, I've got the answer for you. Amanda Charnley described it in one of her interviews. Quote, he stayed with the old man in the prison cell for a whole week, teaching him his catechism. Peter Pierre was a devout Catholic. He was teaching him all the rites of the church and all that hereafter stuff, end quote. Now, if you remember in episode four, we shared how the Indian Act put tremendous restrictions on the indigenous people, limiting every aspect of their lives, including how they moved and how they gathered. This would also impact how Slumac and other indigenous people would be treated in jail. Don and Gail believe that Peter Pierre was able to work with Slumac because he had Father Morgan's blessing and that he was able to offer him more comfort because of it. 
that's one of the things that comes up is people will say, well, Slomak was baptized a Catholic. That makes him a Catholic? No, it doesn't. He was baptized a Catholic. That's all it is. We know who he was, you know, and uh, in his heart, you know, we, we look at him as a spiritual person. We look at him as a medicine man. And we look at Peter Pierre as a spiritual person. We look at him as a medicine man. The creator doesn't look at labels. The creator looks at your heart. That's it. And that's that's how we we look at all these people too, you know. And and Father Morgan, he was he was used as an instrument to get this work done. Yeah, Peter Pierre, he was uh, yeah, a very 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 smart man. And um, what he did was absolutely incredible. What he could do for Slumac, being sent in there to be with Slumac under the name of the church because that was allowed back then. If he would have tried to go in there just as a community leader, as a, a spiritual person traditionally, he would have not been allowed to be with Slumac in that cell. So, you know, he used the church ways to get in, and he used it as an instrument to do what he had to do. So being with Slumac for that for that week was super important for Slumac's next journey. And I'm sure that, you know, People in, in in the jail area could hear, you know, him doing, um, you know, prayers and stuff from what he's taught as a Catholic person and getting and, you know, really giving Slumac his last rites. But what he was really doing is he was doing traditional work with Slumac and doing things with him traditionally, even though he couldn't bring anything in with him, you know, be his instruments like, like a drum or a rattle or any kind of clackers, we call them anything. He did things traditionally with him. When someone's being prepared to pass on to the next life, we always make sure someone is there with them. Mm-hmm. So Peter Pierre knew this, and he knew that's that's one of the that's the the main purpose of him being with Slumac. Now, being in the spiritual position that Peter was in, that Slumac needed um, someone to walk with him down this path until Slumac went on on a line. You know, he had to go on alone, right? At some point. So part of our community's teachings is that you stay with that person until they leave, until they, they walk that path onto the next life, and that's, they got to walk it by themselves. So he used, you know, of course, he, like Gail said, there was no drum, there was no smudge, there was no singing traditionally, but under the, again, the auspices of the, of the Catholic Church, I'm sure Peter Pierre, being the smart guy that he was, he was able to use candles. He was able to do some, maybe some bells, some some incense. Couldn't bring in tobacco and traditional medicine. And he, he would have been able to sing to, to Slumac. And um, this was all done legally then, right? But, I mean, how smart is that? It just shows just how intelligent this Peter was and, that, and how seriously he took his position in the Catholic Church and just how traditional a man he was to make sure that Slumac was looked after. I mean, no, everywhere, anything we've ever heard about Peter Pierre, whether it's through Amanda or anything we've read, this man stands out as a, a true CM, a true respected leader in the community. And that's what reports failed to include in their stories. Peter Pierre seems to be more than just Slumak's nephew or even some random Catholic catechist. It seems like he was a friend. He was a mentor. He was Slumak's guide in the end. And it may have gone both ways, because according to Amanda Charnley, Slumak was also a friend and a guide to Peter Pierre. 
Summer didn't tell anybody about the gold he found, but my father, day before he was executed. At the beginning of the episode, we shared that Slumak drew a very special map for Pierre, most likely on a piece of paper from Pierre's prayer book, which would not have been searched by jail officials. His daughter said Slumak told Pierre that whenever he needed money to follow the map, and he would find the gold. It was full of landmarks that Pierre knew very well from his childhood around Pitt Lake. Slumak was like, there was gold in them there hills. <laughs> the map was an actual rendering of the creek deep in the mountains surrounding Pitt Lake, where Slumak found gold. So much gold that he could just carve it out with a penknife. And even though they destroyed the map in the jail cell, the details were seared into Peter Pierre's mind. Clearly, Slumak was being generous and kind to Peter Pierre, who had been kind and supportive to him. He could have taken the secret with him to the other side of the veil, but he confided in Pierre. He trusted Pierre. This definitely flies in the face of everything we've heard about Slumak in the press and popular culture. There's also something else about Pierre's relationship to Slumak. Don and Gail said Peter Pierre stayed with Slumak in his cell for more than spiritual reasons. The fact that Peter was there protected Slumak from getting a good beating and actually being probably, you know, he's able to eat food and drink water and in, in a humane fashion. Because I think before Peter was there, he probably was not being looked after very well and he was probably maybe declining physically and mentally and spiritually. And um, so they knew they needed to do something um, because they had to. Um, hence, Peter Pierre being allowed to be with him in the cell. And then that, in, in fact, was what Slumac wanted so that he wouldn't die alone. And, and then he didn't because Peter Pierre was with him to help him on his next journey. And there's evidence of this because we've discussed this in previous episodes. There are newspaper reports that mention Slumak's health. At times, we hear that he'll barely survive the court process. And other times, he's described as being robust and healthy. Quote, hardy and hale, they called it. They couldn't get their story straight. The most important thing is that in the end, Slumak did not die alone. According to Amanda Charnley, there was, quote, the hangman, Father Morgan the priest, and Peter Pierre, who actually witnessed the hanging, although there were many people waiting outside the gallow areas that day. She said that, quote, when the hangman was placing the hood over Slumuk's head, the old Indian asked him in Chinook not to waste any time. At that moment, Pierre closed his eyes and began to pray with Father Morgan. When he opened his eyes, all he could see was the dangling rope, unquote. In episode two, we shared Slumak's execution from the perspective of the newspapers at the time. Those reports mentioned several indigenous women remained in the area after the hanging. What was only a minor footnote in one article is a clue to just how much Slumak's community cared for him. Although newspapers reported Slumak to be brutal and inhumane, Don and Gail say that the community still seemed to rally around him. So after Slumat had passed, and these women hung around, they, I think they said they hung around for one, two, three hours maybe after he had passed. 
So, um, you know, my thoughts around that are um, Peter Pierre's mother, if we don't know, she was like a medicine woman. So she carried some traditional powers and she um, did um, cultural medicine with the people and um, she passed those teachings on and she did pass that teaching on to Peter Pierre, which um, made him who he is. So, and I think probably the women that were there for that length of time, they were doing something traditional and they were taking care of Slumak. Um, They were taking care of his journey from this earth to his next being. They were uh, taking care of maybe some of the um, unkept business around Slumak about making sure that his journey to his next life is going to be a smooth journey for him and that they were looking after the things that had happened right at that location uh, where Slumak passed because it wasn't nice. It was not a traditional thing that happened, of course. So the ladies came in to take care of Slumak's spirit? They probably had with them some cedar, like cedar boughs, and they would have probably brushed off his, his, uh, his body. And, um, and that's a cleansing part of the ceremony. So it's interesting because that doesn't happen to everybody. And so for these women to take care of Slumak like that, that speaks highly of, of how he was regarded mm-hmm. in the community. That people, you know, it, we'll just call them community. We don't know if they're a family. Yeah. But they, they were the ones that stepped up to make sure they took care of business. Not everybody got looked after this way, unfortunately. And it wasn't just KC community that probably were there. It was probably a representative from other communities. And those women, they might have represented a community. Yeah. So not just KC. But, you know, and I go back in my words where I say where Slumac was preparing himself. And yeah. the communities knew that's what he was doing yeah. because that's what we do when we're going into a huge change in our lives. And um, that work is being carried on after he left. Despite attempts by his community to obtain the body for a proper burial, Slumak was buried in an unknown grave in the prison cemetery on the edge of New Westminster, more than 30 kilometers away from where his home had been on the shore of Pitt Lake. The authorities had already relocated his community to the Coquitlam Reserve. Gail and Don said this prevented any closure for his family, for his community, and for Slumak. The only things that happened that probably the communities were maybe satisfied with was Peter Pierre was with him and that the women stayed behind. That was the only cultural components of his death. And, and it's very sad because we, we celebrate differently when, you know, someone passes. But in this case, it wasn't a choice. It was imposed upon us that Slumak was going to be hung. So it didn't matter what the community said. It was going to happen anyway, so they, they did what they could for, for him. But the community as a whole and the communities surrounding Katsy never, never got that closure. And still today, who knows, related to the curse. Yeah, well, the community never had a chance to complete the work that needed to be done for closure. So it was closure for community and closure for Slovak himself. So that work still needs to be done. Because the teachings are now, the spirit is wandering around. That's what the the old people talk about. He is not at rest. The spirit is not at rest. And, you know, the curse of Slovak lives on 
And I'm sure in, in his spirit, he'd like nothing better than to be at ease. This goes to show that Slumuk's story is not what we've been told. That maybe he wasn't bloodthirsty, wasn't villainous, wasn't insane. He was just an old man who most likely surrendered himself to save his community from further abuse by the authorities. We also know that had Slumuk been a white man, there's no way they would have gone, found his cabin, taken all of his food and supplies out of it, and torched the cabin and burned it to the ground. They did that to Slumuk. The, the police did that to Slumuk because he was indigenous, because he was a Coast Salish man. So that tells you that the system is treating him differently. And instead of Slumuk being dragged through the colonial criminal justice system to his death, what if he had been given a chance to take part in the traditional Catesy justice process? There's a big story behind why it happened, and we don't know why. So a traditional justice process will bring those things out. Would there have been a different outcome for Slumuk? In our traditional ways, we don't say punishment, we say healing. And if he had, would there even be a curse on the gold at all? Remember, I told you the official record might not be all there is to the story. And all stories have to begin somewhere. All this and more as we travel deeper into the legend of Slumok to uncover the truth behind the dead man's curse. Thank you for joining me, and special thanks to Gail Starr and Don Froze for their work on this episode. Dead Man's Curse, Slumok's Gold is written by Ernest White II and Dila Velasquez. Our producers are Jessica Young and Dila Velasquez. Editing and sound design by Rob Johnston and Rosalyn Kofor. Our associate producers are Valerie Hold Mershon and Gail Starr. Our indigenous cultural and heritage consultant is Gail Starr. Our executive producers are Chris Duncombe, Ernest White II, Michael Francis, Tim Hardy, and David Way. Dead Man's Curse is a curious cast and great Pacific media production. 